Radio 3. Morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to a new week of Money Talk on Monday the 15th of August. This is Peter Lewis with the business headlines. The Hong Kong government has revised down its forecast for economic growth in the territory for the second time in the past three months and is now predicting a possible contraction for the third time since 2019 as the city grapples with COVID restrictions, a trade slump and other global headwinds. The SAR's growth forecast has been amended to a range of between a contraction of half a percent and growth of half a percent, down from the previous range of 1% to 2% growth. China's credit growth slowed sharply in July and new bank lending tumbled more than expected because of sluggish domestic demand. Chinese banks extended 679 billion yuan. That's just over 100 billion US dollars in new loans in July, less than a quarter of June's amount, and falling short of analysts' expectations. Fresh COVID flare-ups, worries about jobs and a deepening property crisis have made companies and consumers wary of taking on more debt. Five of China's largest state-owned companies said Friday they would delist their shares from US exchanges in a dispute between China and the US over allowing American regulators to inspect the audit work of Chinese businesses to prevent investors from accounting frauds and other financial malfeasance. PetroChina, Sinopec, China Life Insurance, Aluminium Corporation of China and Shanghai Petrochemical Corporation announced plans to delist their depository shares from the New York Stock Exchange. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Alex Wong of Alex KY Wong Asset Management and David Friedland from Interactive Brokers with a view from mainland China's Brock Silvers at Kyan Capital. Money Talk on On Wall Street, US stocks notched a fourth straight week of gains in their best run since November 2021. The S&P 500 gained 1.7% to finish at 4,280. It was up 3.3% on the week and has rebounded almost 17% from its recent low on the 16th of June. The S&P 500 closed above the key technical level of 4,231. That's the 50% retracement from its peak to trough, which historically is a signal that stocks have already bottomed. The Dow added 424 points, or 1.3%, to close at 33,761. The Dow was up 2.9% for the week. The Nasdaq Composite surged 2.1% to 13,047 and rose 3.1% on the week. The Nasdaq Composite has rebounded almost 23% from its mid-June low following four successive weeks of gains. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index rose 1.2% over the five sessions. London's FTSE 100 added 0.8% over the same period. Hong Kong stocks ended the week on a positive note on Friday as traders hoped that a drop in inflation in the US could allow the Federal Reserve to ease back its interest rate hikes. The Hang Seng Index added 93 points, or half a percent, to close at 20,176. The Hang Seng Index still ended the week with a 0.1% loss and is down 10% since the end of June, putting the index in a technical correction. The Hang Seng Tech Index climbed half a percent, but was down 1.5% over the week. 
The Shanghai Composite Index edged down 0.2% to 3,277, but was up 1.5% over the five days. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil rose 3.4% over the week, settling at $98.15 a barrel. Copper was up 3.66% on the week. Gold added 1.6% over the five days to $1,800 an ounce. The yield on the benchmark 10-year note dropped five basis points to 2.84%. And the US dollar was weaker over the last five trading days. The euro this morning trading at one dollar two and a half cents. The bucks at one hundred and thirty three point three one Japanese yen. Sterling climbed to one dollar twenty one and a third cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and fifty one cents. The Chinese yuan is trading at six point seven three and a half in offshore markets this morning. And Bitcoin rose for the third week out of the last four to twenty four thousand eight hundred dollars. Now, taking a look around Asian stocks this morning. First of all, markets in South Korea and India are closed today for a public holiday. Down in Australia, the SX200 is up a third of a percent. Uh, stocks in Japan have rallied at the open. The Nikkei 225 up about two thirds of a percent. But looks like the Hang Seng is going to lose about 75 points at the open this morning. Times eight or eight and a half. Let's welcome our guests over in our Queensway studio, our regular Monday commentator, Alex Wong, director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management Company. Morning, Alex. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, David Friedland, managing director for Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. Welcome, David. Good morning. Uh, let's start with the Hong Kong economy. The Hong Kong government has revised down its forecast for economic growth for the ter- in the territory for the second time now in the past three months. And it's now predicting a possible contraction for the third time since 2019. The SAR's growth forecast has been amended to a range of between a contraction of half a percent and growth of half a percent, down from the previous range of one to two percent. And um, the government also revised its estimate of second quarter GDP to minus 1.3 percent on a year on year basis. That's a slight improvement from the initial estimate of 1.4 percent. Um, Alex, if you want to kick off, um, possibly three uh, three recessions now since 2019. Is something going wrong here with our economic policy in the city? Well, I think uh, the major concern is the border policy. Because right now, I think uh, people are already adjusting their, 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 their business or, or, or expectations. So um, actually, we are seeing some revival in business interest here. Uh, except the financial market, I think, but uh, um, because because they they all uh, expect like a a change in the border policy probably towards the end of this year, so that will change ev- everything. I think so. The present downturn actually would not worry people too much. I think that people are trying to get ready for a reopen uh, in the in the border. Is the the announcement that was made last week of reducing it to three days? You don't think that's enough? That is not enough. I think that's only the first step. But that is uh, an encouraging first step. But you get the impression, though, that maybe in China, zero COVID is going to be with us for a long time, maybe years. Um, President Xi Jinping doesn't seem to be too bothered um, about it. We we can't cope with that for, for years, can we? I, I don't think we can, and and I think even China can't. So I think uh, probably we may see some change in stance uh, in China later on. Hopefully, I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
that that is a a a a a, 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 a very important and a very important uh, variable as well. I think if China co- uh, continue this zero profit policy and and close its borders like right now, then I think uh, we probably may, may may be wrong on our policies expectations. David, what do you make of this? The problem is once you keep getting sort of recessions year after year, or three of them now since 2019, you start to get economic scarring, don't you? And you get sort of permanent, uh, permanent damage done to the economy. Are you seeing signs of that? We see some of it. I think it all can be replaced, but you know, it's a short-term pain, which is a problem, though, because you have all the high-end spenders from, from China that come in and all the... Um, the, t- the tourists, as well as um, executives coming in and spending money in, in, in the, um, the local Hong Kong economy, is it's impacting everyone from art, you know, art dealers, watchmakers, luxury goods, down to pretty much everything. Mm. And at some point, we have to do something about it. So hopefully, you know, there's three days. It's, it's a baby step. It's not good enough because it's not going to bring in tourists. It's not going to bring in... Uh, that many people from China because you still have to st- you're still essentially locked up for seven days if you're a tourist. Um, but I think it's kind of dabbling in. Let's see how it works. Hopefully the hospitals don't get filled up, which they shouldn't, based upon what's going on in the rest of the world. Get people confident with hopefully just to live with COVID, and then we can open up and move on. Mm. But, I, but I do think once we open up, it'll be, it'll be booming here. But you you only have to look at Hong Kong airports. It's almost like the bellwether of what's happening um, to to Hong Kong. It used to be the busiest airport in Asia. It was number one. Now, in the latest data that out, it's not even in the top 30 um, anymore. It's been overtaken by airports in India, Bangkok's bigger, uh, Singapore was number one. And we're only operating at below 10% of pandemic levels, whereas airports like Singapore are getting close to recovering um, almost all of that lost business. We're, we're falling so far, far behind, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, frankly, Hong Kong is a regional airport now. It, it, it's, it's, it's a desert. Mm. Um, but you know, that, that can change very quickly, but you need the policy to change. Now, of course, the airlines are going to have to find staff, and if they don't move quickly, it's, this is going to linger on because you do need pilots, and the pilots want to work. The pilots don't want to be locked down, and, and there's a huge demand for pilots around the world. So you've got to have something happen fast. I don't think this can go on forever. Do you think, Alex and David, that the uh, the government is focused enough on the the economy? This really ought to be the number one priority for the government right now, shouldn't it? Getting us out of uh, this hole. Do you feel that uh, enough focus is made by the John Lee administration on this? I think they are already doing some improvement. I think they are trying to do some some uh, baby steps uh, at a time so and see uh, how the um, COVID situations are developing uh, together with those uh, relaxations. Mm. So I think uh, they are already addressing these issues. What, what do you think, David? Do you think it's a big enough priority? It should be the top priority, shouldn't it? I think their hands are tied to a certain extent. I, I, I think they know it's a top priority. Um, and I hope they're watching what's going on in the rest of the region. Uh, you know, COVID cases in Korea right now are just rampant again. Even Hong Kong, it, it, it's it's um, it's quite getting quite prevalent. Where it's hard to, talk, to to look to anyone who hasn't had COVID yet. So hopefully that once people here start getting comfortable with with um, the fact that it's not putting incredible numbers of people in the hospital, 
that we can start moving on. But again, we have to answer the mainland. We have to work with them and hopefully come up with a solution over time. Okay. Let's turn our attention to the mainland. China's credit growth slowed sharply in July. Chinese banks extended 679 billion yuan. That's about $101 billion in new loans in July. But that's less than a quarter of June's amount. Aggregate financing, which is the broad measure of credit, uh, was about $112 billion. That's the smallest increase since data began in 2017, much, much lower uh, than the consensus estimate. Household loans, including mortgages, fell and corporate loans uh, slid um, as well. Uh, But M2, which is the broadest measure of money supply, grew 12% in July from a year earlier. Alex, this is sort of looking like a liquidity trap, isn't it? There is money there, um, plenty of money sloshing around the system, uh, but banks just don't seem to be able to lend it and no one wants it. I think uh, this is quite expected because uh, we have a property crisis in China right now and uh, other kind of business like technology, education and everything actually are are not uh, booming and they are actually contracting. So I think that's why we are do not see any uh, kind of um, long demand there. And then the bankers actually should be prudent. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think uh, the, there's a liquidity trap uh, phenomenon in China right now. How do you get out of it? This is very difficult, actually. I think uh, we need to see some change in policy or some change in the government stance. Uh, they, are, they are still quite tight. Uh, they, they, are, they are offering some help, but um, only trying to help those um, homeowners, I think. Uh, so um, I think uh, this is quite difficult to, to, to solve this issue because we, this, is, uh, this is resembling what happened in the U.S. in, the, in 2008. Mm. And U.S. pumped a lot of money into the system, but I don't think China would do so. Mm. David, this is sort of um, a problem, isn't it? Because a monetary policy doesn't work when you end up in this situation. You can uh, ease monetary policy, but if people don't want to borrow, if they're worried about their jobs, worried about uh, the, the value of their house, uh, monetary policy doesn't work anymore. No, but this was a problem that, you know, I think many saw it coming, but everyone said this time is different. Um, it was a housing bubble for certain in, in China, and now they have to work their way, and it takes time to get out of this. Mm. The easy way to get out of it is to open up. Uh, once you open up, confidence improves and people start spending again. But where does all this excess liquidity go? It, it's all there, isn't, doesn't it? Is, is the risk maybe it goes into the financial markets and instead of the economy? I think that's what will end up happening once um, you know, confidence will change over, over time. And money will flow into stocks and equities and other products and maybe even bonds. Do you think, Alex, that's, uh, that's the, the possibility that you know, this excess liquidity that's clearly sitting there um, in the system, Beijing wants uh, banks to go and lend, but nevertheless, uh, people don't want to borrow, just ends up going into the financial markets, as we saw uh, in the U.S.? I think uh, later on we would probably will see that phenomenon. But right now, there's the confidence on Chinese stocks actually are, are pretty low. Uh, I think... Uh, uh, there is a bit difference from the U.S. I think U.S. investors had happy experience for decades, but for Chinese investors, actually, they don't have that kind of uh, happy experience. They probably just see the market ranging in a very wide range for for a very long time. So, I don't think uh, they would be very bullish. I think they would just uh, uh, try to take advantage of a short-term bull. 
Mm. It's not looking great for uh, for Asian markets at the moment at all, really, is it? Particularly if you look at earnings. I mean, if you look at the earnings for the MSCI Asia Pacific Index, um, they're down about 16% in the second quarter. Look at S&P 500 earnings, and, and they're up. I think it's close to uh, 10% now. There's this big difference, isn't there, between um, the outlook for Asia, the outlook for, for the US? I think that that is due to the oil uh, because the U.S. actually has those uh, giant oil companies in the in the index, mm-hmm. so uh, that's why they are supporting the, the the earnings. So in 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 Asia, actually, you do not have that kind of uh, support from uh, giant oil companies in the in the in the in the market. So that's why I think uh, there's a huge difference. But if you look at the um, forex market, actually, there's uh, some. Um, uh, green suits because uh, the the U.S. dollars actually had weakened quite a lot, and even Hong Kong dollar actually uh, strengthening. So I think uh, that probably uh, is a good sign for uh, the market in the short term at least. And what is it that's dragging down Asian earnings? Uh, of course, everything: uh, <laughs> consumer spending, uh, manufacturing, those kind of things. Because uh, we have a, a rise in uh, commodity prices in the first half, so if you are manufacturers, you will be affected by that. Mm. Um, David, what, what, what's the thoughts of retail investors um, here to, towards Asia at the moment? It, it's been a tough, uh, tough year, hasn't it? Yeah, I think I think people are selective and, and trading more than investing. Um, it's a trader's market. You have a lot of volatility out there, so those who are a little more sophisticated are trading a bit more, getting in, getting out, to taking um, taking some market movement. But um, actually, I do say sophisticated, but then again. I, I look at the retail, you know, the, the, um, you know, the meme stocks movements and all that. Are they back? The, the meme stocks seem to be back again, don't they? They, they fell out of favor for yeah, they a, just a little while. They just don't go away. So I think social media is still going to be a big influence on what happens in the market. Mm. And, and what you do in, in this type of market where you have sort of quite a tough um, economic environment, there are recession fears um, around, what, what type of companies do you, do you focus on? Do you look for those companies that, that can weather the tough economic environment? Is that, is that the pr- priority? I think you've got to have a mix. Uh, you, you probably have to separate your portfolio into two parts. One is the inflation winners, like uh, oils and, and, and agricultural companies. And another part is uh, recession winners, I think like packaged foods and also technology companies. Mm. So the market actually basically gyrates within these two groups. And I think that the third group probably with some uh, structural winners. Uh, so they, they probably may, may weather uh, in all kinds of economic situations. So I think uh, they, they are overvalued last year and they, the valuation come down a lot. And then this year they are, they are rising again. So I think um, that basically you have to um, trade uh, within these three groups uh, from time to time. But I think uh, um, the best way is to stick with those as kind of structural winners. Mm. Say Apple actually is, is, is the best representative of that group. And, and what do you make of uh, U.S. markets? A lot of debate now about whether U.S. stocks are back in a bull market or whether this is a bear market rebound. They're up for four weeks in a row. Um, that They've regained that quite psychologically important technical level of a 50% uh, rebound from peak, uh, peak to trough. Well, what are your thoughts? I think U.S. has bottomed already. 
Uh, this is a, a winner's bull market right now, at least. Um, so those kind of companies which can weather the resections or in, uh, probably may, may already in the bull market. And mm. other probably just a dry rate, I think. So uh, sentiment has improved quite a lot. Um, but uh, people probably will look at commodity prices um, more closely right now and they will correlate the, the commodity markets with the stock market because uh, uh, the inflation data actually are, are, are the key uh, element to watch, and people learn from experience that oils and and food actually comes down quite uh, 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 before the, the the inflation data show. So I think uh, people will look at the price actions in oil and and food uh, very closely right now, and sentiment would change with that. David, inflation is is the big topic, isn't it? And, and the debate about whether or not inflation has has peaked. What what do you think? I don't know if we're out of the woods yet. We're completely dependent on, on supply side, um, you know, the oil chocks, the food um, situation around the world and weather. Don't forget climate change. Um, you're having these massive floods and fires all around the world right now. That's certainly going to impact uh, food um, and produce prices as we move forward. Um, but I, I think, you know, from the... The other side of the equation where people are starting to be a little more frugal on what they spend and firms aren't raising um, prices as fast as they, they have with interest rates going high, I think that part is getting under control. But we're still completely at the mercy of the commodity side. Okay, well, thank you very much. You heard there David Friedland, Managing Director for Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. Alex Wong, who's Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management Company. <laughs> You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. Time's 8.24. On the phone is Brock Silvers, Chief Investment Officer at Kyan Capital. Morning, Brock. Good morning. Um, I want to talk to you about US-China relations. A lot of things going on at the moment, isn't there? We had Nancy Pelosi's visit uh, to Taiwan a couple of weeks ago, and now uh, we have a new delegation of of US uh, senators just landed in in Taipei yesterday. Are we any clearer now at all as the longer-term implications of, of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? Well, look, I think the relationship has clearly crossed the line, and I don't think we can expect it to return to the status quo ante. Um, and I think a lot of things ha- have have changed for both better and worse. You know, in terms of cooperation, China's pulled back in a lot of areas. Now, a lot of that won't matter. Um, important issues, tariffs, SEC, tech, I think that will just continue on as normal. But when we take a look at issues like global trade and supply chains, I think it's going to be a, a significant um, a significant change. Um, you know, we already can expect insurance to drive shipping costs higher. That's going to have a real inflation impact. Mm. And I think what we can also see is that, look, the Taiwan issue has just become a, a terrifying one for foreign companies with onshore concerns and investments. Mm. And Many are looking at ex-China options, uh, you know, onshoring, friendshoring, et cetera. But no one wants to be caught exposed if geopolitical risk becomes geopolitical reality. So so what do um, foreign companies do, those that have investments in China, those that have investments in, um, in Taiwan? Because it looks like the status quo, as you say, has sort of unraveled, hasn't it? It's sort of collapsed in, 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 in sort of its own contradictions. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and look. People are looking for um, some are looking are, are looking to exit uh, exit China market for, from from um, 
from an investment standpoint. Others are just looking for potential alternatives so that they're prepared. Mm. But either way, none of this bodes well for for the region. It will certainly have an impact on uh, investment flows, employment levels, future growth rates. Um, none of it speaks well for us. And the, and the sector that perhaps is the most in focus is the semiconductor sector because Taiwan is the world's biggest exporter of, of semiconductors. I think at least 60% of the world's semiconductors now come from Taiwan. We've had uh, the US said on Friday it's going to um, put export controls on some advanced semiconductor uh, technologies. It's also uh, Joe Biden just signed into law the Chips and Science Act. Uh, what's this all mean for that sector? Is this now almost going to become the battleground? It, it certainly is an important battleground. Look, the, the U.S. chips bill is a reaction to a perceived strategic reliance upon China. And I suppose for the U.S. it makes sense to encourage onshoring and promote domestic development. But for our purposes, it's a sign that the U.S. is certainly serious about enforcing um, tech restrictions upon China. Um, and China is, is not helping, you know, as relations with Taiwan, sour, the, the Taiwanese chip sector is being sort of driven into American arms as well. Um, so it, it, makes, it makes for a very contentious battleground. Now, China thought it could bootstrap its own world-class sector, but, but it just isn't that simple. And I think Beijing is now finally realizing that they've put quite a lot of time and money into this, um, and those involved are beginning to feel a bit of Beijing's ire. Mm, we're seeing that, aren't we, with the uh, the big fund, um, and and you know Beijing seems to be clearly, as you say, very rattled that it's put so much money into developing its chip sector, but yet it's still really beholden uh, to sanctions and pressure from the U.S. Right, and it, look, it just doesn't seem that that's going to change in the near term. Mm. Um, and having put so much time and energy, and having been so successful in similar efforts in other sectors. I think that just came as a, a bit of a shock to Beijing. And, and why has it not worked? Is that because, um, you know, it's almost uh, too big a sector to try and control from the centre? It would be better to let companies battle it out. Why has all this effort and money not worked? You know, it, not only is it very big, but it's also very technologically complex, and it requires um, a, a very large and sophisticated ecosystem. And you can't just snap your fingers and apply some capital and, and make that sprout overnight. It normally takes quite a bit of time and, and success to develop that. Now, the other battleground seems to be Chinese companies listed in the U.S. Five of them on Friday announced that they're going to start the process of delisting uh, from U.S. exchanges at the end of this month. I presume it's not a coincidence that five of the biggest state-owned companies announced that. Presumably that's all got the green light from, uh, from Beijing. But what does that mean? Well, look, I actually think this is good news for all concerned. Um, the U.S., just can't allow listings that don't adhere to U.S. audit standards. And I don't even really think that there's a lot of room for negotiation on that. Now, China's SOEs are never going to be in a position to be able to comply, and they're, I think, smartly beginning to transition. Um, so the question is, where are all the delistings and relistings going to go? Um, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Shanghai, they just, they just don't have the depth to take them all at least not with the anticipated pricing and liquidity. Mm. Um, so we're, we're looking at a increasingly complex problem, and it, it's also a clear sign of, I think, the, 
the growing disengagement between the two economies. Hong Kong and mainland China, they're the only two jurisdictions in the world that refuse to submit to U.S. audit requirements for listing on exchanges. Why not? Right. Why are they so worried uh, about what may be found in their company's audit reports? You know, look, they, they claim it's all about data and secrecy. I, I'm not quite sure I see that. But even if we give um, Hong Kong and China the benefit of the doubt on this issue, you just can't expect um, – an exchange, be it in the U.S. or any other country, to accept foreign applicants and provide them with special rules. Um, you know, exchanges are going to have to follow national rules, whether that's in China, the U.S., or any other country. Mm. Brock, good to hear your thoughts there. Thank you very much. That's Brock Silvers, Chief Investment Officer at Kyan Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take another look around Asian markets. Just a reminder that South Korea and Indian markets are closed for public holidays today. Uh, but in Australia, the ASX 200 is up about half a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen 0.6%. And with about an hour to go uh, to the open here in Hong Kong, futures markets are pointing to a loss of about 75 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chat after the news with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse this morning. The weather forecast, very hot again, apart from isolated showers during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be about 33 degrees. That very hot weather warning is back in force. Uh, sunny periods and a few showers tomorrow. Very hot during the day and then windier with more showers in the following couple of days. It's 29 degrees right now, 85% relative humidity. Times 8.32, here's Andrew Shorsky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Health authorities are appealing to parents to get their young children vaccinated against COVID-19. Government advisor Professor Lao Yu Long says last month there were five children who required intensive care while a 22-year-old, uh, sorry, 22-month-old died after getting infected. He said around 2.6% of children aged between six months and three years have had the COVID jab since it was made available to that age group from August the 4th. He urged parents not to wait for BioNTech version, saying the Sinovac jab was just as good at reducing deaths and serious illness. I look at the figure this morning is 2.6% of the vaccinated. It's still a tiny number. I think the initial phase is very hard to convince people that every one of us keep prodding on and keep explaining and presenting the facts to the public. Then that number will creep up. When it starts to reach about 20, 30%, you will probably see a fairly rapid rise of about 50 or 60%. Yesterday, there were over 4,900 new cases reported and three more COVID-related deaths. Meanwhile, a five-year-old patient is in critical condition. Police have charged a 35-year-old man and a 24-year-old woman with one count of murder. The pair had earlier been arrested in connection with the death of a three-month-old baby boy in Mongkok early on Saturday. Investigations are ongoing. The governor of, the, of New York says her state will always stand up for freedom of thought after the attack on the author, Salman Rushdie. Kathy Hochul said a man with a knife would never silence a man with a pen. She was speaking at the Chautauqua Institution where Mr. Rushdie was stabbed on Friday as he prepared to address a literary event. This is the state of New York. We are a proud people. We're proud to have an institution that fosters these ideals, makes us proud of them, shares this knowledge... Because this is common to our DNA, to speak up, to speak up loudly. 
Mr. Rushdie has been a target for Muslim extremists since publishing the Satanic Verses more than 30 years ago. His agent says the writer is on the road to recovery in hospital. North Korean state media say the Russian President Vladimir Putin has called for stronger ties between Moscow and Pyongyang. The KCNA news agency says President Putin sent a letter to Kim Jong-un on Korean Liberation Day saying their country should expand constructive bilateral relations. Mr. Putin said closer ties would help strengthen the security and stability of the Korean Peninsula and the wider region. An electrical fire at a church in the Egyptian capital of Cairo has killed at least 41 people and injured many.